0: Creating and understanding science does not guarantee you that you will be able to share your work in the best and most understandable and useful way. So, this requires special skills. And to be frank, it's hard to learn it.
1: Welcome to the Business of Policymaking, the new podcast from Leeds University Business School with myself, Jana Jabornik, and produced by Hannah Preston. My guest today is Dr. Janis Potocnik, a two-time European commissioner, responsible for the science and research portfolio up until 2010, when he introduced the European Research Council and then took over the environment portfolio. Today, Dr. Potocnik holds a number of roles in various supranational organizations in the area of environment and climate change, as you can see from his bio available in the episode notes. Janis is someone I've known for very long. He was my very first boss at the Institute of Macroeconomic Analysis and Development of the Republic of Slovenia, and we both joined the European Commission in 2004. The main reason I want to talk to him today is his vast experience in policymaking at various levels. As a senior policymaker, Janis offers a unique insight into the daily life of a decision maker, the role of academic research in informing policy agenda, and a role of wider politics, but also share some top tips on how to engage with different communities. We hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Yanis, thank you very much for joining me today. I'm very excited to have you on the show. In the past and in the policy world, many have accused universities of behaving more like corporations, ignoring the ecosystems in which they operate. Often there's an impression that research is influential if it gets published in a top-tier journal. So in your various roles, including your responsibility as a commissioner for research, how did you understand and envisage the societal role of scientific or academic research? More precisely, what, if any, role should academic research play in informing setting policy agendas in their implementation, their evaluation?
0: let me try to answer first in a brief short summary. Informing, uh, it's without any doubt important. Setting policy agendas, uh, yes, but it's less obvious than informing. While when it comes to implementation, evaluation, of course, the best judge, it's always time. I've always had a bit of the problem uh, when I was responsible for science and research portfolio, how this uh, evaluation of scientific work uh, should be done and how it's the best done. Uh, you, uh, you certainly know the famous uh, Faraday's answer, linked to electricity, it's so important that you will tax it. So it's difficult to know what will actually make differences, serious differences, and what will not make some serious differences. But let me go to some of the uh, basic facts which I think are linked to the the academic research. Uh, First of all, you would hardly find anybody in the policy world who would not, at least in theory, claim that policymaking should be based on good knowledge. In the European Commission, for example, we have had for each proposal which you need to have so-called impact assessment in which you evaluate uh, all different kinds of sides uh, of the proposal. And the real question and the real battle is what impact assessment should uh, include. Should it include only economic parts? Should it include also environmental health consequences and so on? Academic research as such is, uh, of course, seen as an unbiased research. So research which do not have a kind of interest base like sometimes, it's the research which is happening in, in corporate institutions, in corporate business sector, and it's always considered as very reliable. As you know, one of the questions, which is also pretty frequently on our tables, is uh, related to, because as long as science will exist, there will be different answers. To, and what, of course, a policymaker needs is assurance, so feeling that you are on the right side and that you are using the right data. And uh, I think one of the directions which I like, and by the way, I'm co-chairing one of those, it's how you actually create a critical mass of science like we have it in in climate change, the IPCC, like we have it in the area of biodiversity loss, IPBS, and I'm, uh, as you probably know, co-chairing the International Resource Panel. But even if there is a clear scientific evidence, you have no guarantee that science will be used in the most sincere and impactful way because it is clear that uh, policymakers are also human like anybody else and they have their own agendas which they want to defend. And sometimes it's cherry picking and you use this part of science which actually is best fitting into, into your agenda. So when... Uh, You asked also about the research on the European Union level. Of course, uh, there are different programs. I don't know exactly what is the structure of the current program, but uh, certainly there will always be programs which will be trying to address societal needs, so-called thematic areas. Then there will be programs which will be dealing with scientific frontiers, Uh, by the way, Uh, I was the one who established the European Research Council, and I think it took not many years to prove that it's probably the most effective instrument which we have ever had on the European Union level. Then what uh, currently colleagues are trying is establishing as good uh, link and bridge to the innovation. And uh, that's why some of the projects or better to say programs are also linked to private-public relation and how you basically establish that kind of cooperation. By the way, in European Commission, we have also in-house research. So it's called Joint Research Centre. These are a few of the centres around some parts of the European Union. So I was responsible for that, but the colleagues were actually more or less taking the benefits when I was science and research commissioner. So we were providing inputs to the various kinds of areas which colleagues were covering. So policymakers in short receive really lots of inputs from uh, this is our task. So we need to listen to everybody. On the science, it's of course, a kind of a guiding direction. You have the business sector, you have the civil society, And uh, I think it's really important Then you have consumers, you have trade associations and so on, and you are bound to listen to everybody because that's your role. Uh, What is at the end your decision? It's, of course, your uh, own responsibility. And all those which I was mentioning are in one or another way quoting science and coming with the scientific facts in front of you. So... What I have sensed in, in all those years is that, in particular now, when I'm out of the side well, where I was responsible for funding, but now more on the side when I'm receiving uh, some of the funding support, is that uh, there is a fundamental lack of funding for complex and system change uh, related questions, which are simply seen as as complicated, obviously, or not attractive enough. So foundations are simply not funding that. And the only logic would be that the public sector would fund that. And public sector, it's sometimes simply too cumbersome or, again, too much looking into different uh, separate parts and not to connectivity of those parts in the most, most needed way which would be, by the way, needed by the policymaker, and which leads also to the fact that uh, policymakers then many times are are using uh, that kind of argumentation, which not always leads to most unconflicting and useful decisions from that kind of uh, knowledge base. But uh, to conclude this first part, and just to say, when you look to public opinion polls, it's pretty straightforward and clear. They trust most scientists and they trust least politicians. So when you are on the policy side, you have to take that into account. And of course, uh, if you want to improve the uh, kind of acceptance of the things which you, you try to do, you are quite a lot trying to to be knowledge-based, look to those sources. But again, you have seen in various kinds of examples, including COVID recently, that it's simply not enough. There is a lot of public media which are allowing uh, an enormous possibility of manipulation, so on one hand, they are an excellent base for informing people, but on the other hand it's also an excellent base for manipulating them and You know that uh, we are normally guided based on fears, and many times this is an easy way how how to basically run some of the policies and into directions which are actually not really in the public interest and uh, which are pretty much short-minded.
1: Well, what you're describing here, Jan, is is really something that's far more complicated. And I think the picture you are painting really shows that what I have witnessed as both a policy scholar and, and a policy advisor And that's kind of disjointed incrementalism instead of comprehensive model of policy planning. Very often, there's this impression that there's a linear process and whatever happens in between is just magic. But as as you've mentioned yourself, in combination with the recent pandemic, this has affected and disrupted national research and higher education institutions as well. Their ability to understand and then flexibly respond to and integrate national and international policy frameworks into our institutional research strategies. Obviously, try to be in touch and focusing on what, what's out there in the policy world, but it's becoming ever more convoluted and ever more challenging. So, you have worked in very mixed teams, multidisciplinary, and You yourself regularly collaborated with academics. You also actively created opportunities for and invited academic research into decision-making processes. You encouraged debates and knowledge exchanges, even in countries where these aren't as natural as one would think. Why and how, and who did you reach out to? Yeah,
0: as you know, I'm an economist, so uh, unfortunately One learns pretty quickly in policy world a lot of the how to convince your colleagues. And the best way to actually get your proposals approved is to have good economic arguments, which actually helped me a lot to understand the arguments, how to convince the colleagues. So I was trying to use their language to basically persuade them. And uh, I think it's always, in policymaking, it's always like that. Everybody has to to look at the interest for the portfolio where he or she is standing. My understanding was always that cooperation is much better than winning against somebody else because winning is at the end losing both. But maybe somebody at a short time believes that the benefits of the short-minded current situation prevail, but it's simply not like that. So I think it's really important that you are able to step into other shoes, try to understand them, but on the other hand, have clearly in your mind what do you want to achieve and what is the end of the tunnel where you would like to reach. So when we were working with the colleagues, I'm also the member of the Club of Rome, with the colleagues from the Club of Rome and and Systemic, on trying to identify which are the major bottlenecks and why the things are as they are, we came to the conclusion that uh, the policymaking is uh, simply something which we have already mentioned. So it's too much looking to a kind of silo way of approach. So it's not connecting uh, various kinds of areas. So if I explain it, for example, in most known uh, climate change approach, getting net zero greenhouse gases 2050, whatever it will cost. So I have the problem with this part of the sentence, whatever it will cost. So one needs always to look to new lock-ins which you are creating and trying to put the things and rather for whatever it will cost, make it with at least cost. So we know that this is needed, that it's beneficiary. But of course, many of the decisions which you are taking have consequences on the other areas which you need to take into account. The second bottleneck which we have actually identified was the fact that we are many times staying on the surface and not really going to the drivers and pressures. And it is drivers and pressures which are leading the game and uh, which are the core reason why we are where we are. In that, I'm meaning we don't go enough times to the core of the use of of the access and use of natural resources, which is at the core of practically all historical developments. Access and use of natural resources were always the base for the well-being of nations. That's why resource imperialism was pretty much, uh, colonialism was, was part of the game, but they were also pretty much the core reason for uh, conflicts, wars, uh, and, and also for the inequality which is currently existing in the world so going to that it's pretty much not part of the agenda as well as going to the market uh, signals which are currently pretty much uh, really sending producers and consumers uh, i have to say clearly in the wrong directions and the third bottleneck which we have identified is that We do not admit that actually something is wrong with the economic system, which we have created. So we want to make economic system as efficient and better, but not really change it. And this will not work. So we stay pretty much on the supply side and we don't ask the question who is actually responsible for this wastefulness and who is behaving in a way that this has then the wastefulness consequences. When I was in the environment, one of the things which you learn is that you are responsible for all the problems, but solutions are pretty much in the hands of your colleagues. So you need to make coalitions. You need to go to talking to them, persuading them. You need to listen to various interest groups. And I think this this is all part of the job which you have. And when it comes to the use of the science, because you asked also how I think a very nice example was, if you remember, the diesel gate which was connected to Volkswagen. Um, that was the exhausts, uh, how they were measured and so on, and in particular, NOx, which was pretty much not under our attention. And it was on the basis of our internal research, which we have done in Joint Research Center, that we have somehow revealed that some problems exist there. And we pointed there and then... As you know, this pretty much speed up the whole transition also in the automotive sector. It's hard to say for the policy level itself where it's used more or less. Did we use it more on EU level or, for example, on national level because I was working on both levels? Uh, You try on both levels. So you always connect, you always build some kind of scientific advisory groups and so on, and you always try to connect with that but to be entirely honest there are two ways why you build that one is to tick the boxes and the other is that you basically use it effectively and seriously that you are sincere in putting those things together and i have seen both and i think it's really important that you keep your integrity. And this is the best and most important thing in the relation between a policymaker and a scientist or somebody who is providing you the knowledge.
1: You've raised a number of points also for, I think, at least three different podcasts, which hopefully we will make at some point. But there is one thing that I think for for our listeners could be incredibly useful. You've mentioned that you are setting up and building different scientific advisory groups. And there's one question I'm often asked. How does one get into a scientific advisory group?
0: How does one get into? Yeah, it is normally commissioner or somebody on the top who decides about those things. So you always have to build around yourself a strong team. So that's the most important for any politician to have a strong team around you because you are as strong as people around you are strong, because you can do only as much as you can do. You have 24 hours and uh, an important part of that is sleeping, of course. So you can't do more than that and you need to have good people around you. And you need to well exploit also those parts of institutions which belong to you. And these are two important things. And when talking about those scientific groups, which you built around you, you normally ask them to provide you with the input, which means that they probably, they scan how much impactful they are, how much they are already quoted, how much they are already present, how much they are already active. Normally, we were always searching for those who were there to go out and show that they are ready to publicly say something and be active, because those who are basically helping you in those processes that you basically reach far. Since I'm also in the international resource panel, uh, some scientists are active, some are simply not active, and you don't want to have non-active scientists around you. So uh, some are there just to be there and some are there because it's a lot of investment of work and uh, some simply don't don't either want or don't have time to invest that time. And that's why you, you gain some experience from the past, which were those who are really contributing and doing well. And it is a kind of normal way that you try to keep them or that you try to involve them also in the future. So. I think this is in the best way how I can answer how they are selected.
1: Now, this is incredibly useful, and thank you for, for this honest insight. It's a rare opportunity of having a person of your profile. So I think your experiences with really high-profile national, supranational, international organizations, kind of you've covered them all, including the range of policy actors, ecosystems, really provide a unique understanding of the policy landscape, of the policy cycle, the language of the players, the timelines that policy works towards. And you've shared a lot of that today. But I think very often it is really underestimated the the time constraints on which high-level decision makers operate. And we've often discussed that kind of it gives an entirely new meaning to the elevator pitch because often this is the time you get. And this can be a source of frustration. And the reason knowledge transfer or exchanges between academia and policy world fail Could you walk us through a typical working day of a senior policymaker, so the dynamic, the rhythm, the time pressure, the multiple roles, the demands, the work process, work organisation, the group of people you work with on a typical day? Sure,
0: sure. Okay, let's start my day. Normally, each day we have had a cabinet meeting. Let's say cabinet meetings start at nine o'clock. I was never present from the beginning, so it was head of the cabinet who was leading that meeting. But if it was possible if i was physically there i was always uh, entering the cabinet meeting last 5 minutes so if any questions remain there unanswered if they wanted to have my guidance so i was there and then we have done that quickly and uh, that was the beginning of the day so this was always f- followed by a joint coffee because having a kind of that kind of a debate it's also very useful by the way i was always trying to have coffee also with my administrative supportive staff, because in commission, if one thinks it's problematic, it's the hierarchy. And for me, what was always important was you need to value the people, not positions they hold. And then uh, the day was normally devoted to meeting with the VG colleagues, uh, stakeholders, maybe traveling, if necessary, press, media one thing it's clear one needs to take a lot of decisions rather quickly and for that you need to be well prepared so I I was always uh, reading that's why I gave my colleagues always a limit please n- not more than 20 pages for whatever you want to tell me for whatever you want to prepare me max 20 pages and Evening was always a preparation for the next day, um, twice a week sport, of course, also in the evening, and no dinners. Quite a lot of commissioners was attending the dinners. I was avoiding them for whatever price, because first of all, it's not healthy. Second, evening, it's for preparation for the next day. And I think it was, and for commission, we were not typical politicians, and it's no, not so much of the need for this lobbying or, or connecting with the different governments, different people, than you normally have if you are in the real political life. While I would dare to say that if you are in some, in some other political function, it's more difficult. So this was my typical day. I was, as an anecdote, I was a few times accused of being a technocrat. But uh, frankly, the difference among typical politician and technocrat uh, for me is that the technocrats are reading and preparing more than the typical politicians and uh, end up basing their decisions more on science and, and uh, knowledge. Because you simply believe that that's the right way on which you should function, which doesn't mean that you don't have a political sense, that you don't have that feeling. But I think it's really important that that you don't think that being in a political life for a long time, it's giving you already all the knowledge you need for the next day and for the next meeting, and that you should not come there very much prepared. But coming prepared means you have to work a lot. And that's how, how days are looking. So uh, one thing, it needs to be very clear. Politician is there to defend the public interest. They are paid by public money. And what I, I have learned also sometimes that the lifetime term politicians, when being a politician becomes a job, it's not entirely linked to the... I don't want to sound wrongly. There are some who are excellent and who are really wholeheartedly devoted to that. But sometimes if this is a job, you have to understand they have to take care for their families. They have their own private life for which they have to take care like anybody else who is employed in their own uh, area, which means that they are pretty much uh, guided also by the private interest. And that's sometimes a bit in a collision with defending the longer term stability, public interest, uh, which needs to be there in place if you are holding a public office. We touched a bit the question before uh, about the people, the colleagues. I think this is so, so important and it's really decisive. So I was always trying to build around me the team, which was not too much competitive, so that they were not too much, all too good of of one of the thing, but rather uh, people from different interests, from different areas, uh, different, of course, different gender, everything. So that you get this kind of good mix of everything which then um, actually delivers. And you should never be afraid of of setting around yourself the best you can get. Because if you don't go that way, it's actually just uh, shooting in your own knee. Because at the end of the day, you don't need somebody who tells you that you are right. You need people who tell you this could be better and uh, think it over and you need a team with whom you can debate the questions through, which actually sharpen your arguments, sharpen your mind. And uh, without that, uh, you are pretty much weakening yourself. So on one hand, it's cabinet, then you have DGs, then you have other things. But I think it's, it's pretty much clear that all that is uh, part of the job.
1: We were at the European Commission at the same time. When you started, we both moved to Brussels. But one thing that strikes me is you said you wanted to have max 20-page briefs. Well, in my most senior policy roles, I served politicians instead who wanted a one-pager. So you're talking about preparation resonates with me. And also the the army of people servicing you, it, it really doesn't work on a daily basis like that. Gamis, you understand well the politics of policymaking, different communities, different approaches, different types of decisions, and some are incredibly complex and responsible. Obviously, also different coalitions and power play. Can you offer any top tips or advice to academics who are willing and also eager to engage with the policy world on how to reach and influence audiences beyond academia, where to start?
0: Yeah, um, being excellent does not guarantee you, uh, being excellent, I mean in creating and understanding science, does not guarantee you that you will be able to share your work in best and most understandable and useful way. So this requires special skills. And to be frank, it's hard to learn it. I think some has it, some does not. Saying doesn't mean that you cannot do better, but it is, at least from my experience, uh, pretty much connected to either you you have that or you don't have that, and and uh, you can just build on that. One advice would be being correct about a second second or third number after the comma, the decimal point. Too late. It's scientifically correct, but sometimes it's too late. So it's not useful. So it's sometimes, if you want to be useful for policymaker, it's sometimes better to know that uh, you can be assured that the things which you are doing are on the right-hand side, but don't insist on that, that you would 100% clarify something, which is important for publishing work, by the way. And there you need to defend your scientific rigor But when it comes to public advice, it is really important. So, for example, we have now the need for something like science-based targets which go beyond the climate change targets. And it's so difficult to get scientists to agree what that would be. And if you don't put it on the table, somebody else will put it on the table if the need exists. And this will be, I don't know, either people who are in advisory jobs and and it will not be peer-reviewed, but it will stay. And those things will somehow then lead the decision-making in the future. And the thing which will then stay with the scientists is to, instead, they would be actively contributing to solutions. They will need to be in battle with how to confront those who are now on the table discussing and trying to, trying to explain what is wrong with those things. So I think it's really important to understand that time matters. And messages need to be correct, need to be short, need to be sharp, need to be understandable, to stay with policymakers, to stay with the public. And my way of how I was learning all those things was, whenever I'm on the stage, I'm always, of course, following the audience about the reaction. Then after my my lecture, I always go to see what were the reactions on Twitter, on uh, on LinkedIn to learn what stayed with them and what actually was not understood. So it's always a kind of two-way process in which you need to work. So also scientists sometimes simply resist to go deeper in the policy advice. So that's a personal choice, but it's uh, simply less useful. But on the other hand, it's uh, it has to be well balanced and one should not be too prescriptive and go too far. So needs to have a, a good feeling what is really useful and uh, what is not. I have also learned that some things could be done in the scientific part and for the others you have to go then in consultancy, which dare to push the thing further and quicker and then you go back to scientific part and combine those two kind of uh, inputs for the best outcome. So these are main learnings which I would like to share uh, uh, I think if one wants to be active, needs to understand that the needs of the policy world are different than the needs of the publishing and academia recognition. But that doesn't mean that you do the, any kind of compromise on your academic work.
1: That was precious. Janes, thanks ever so much. And there were so many takeaways that I think my colleagues will benefit from. Again. Thank you for taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule. We really appreciate it.
0: Appreciate it. Take care, Jana and all the best.
1: You've been listening to the Business of Policymaking podcast from Leeds University Business School, presented by Jana Jabornik and produced by Hannah Preston. If you'd like to get in touch about anything you've heard in this episode, our contact details are in the episode show notes.